1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Thank you all so much for, for joining us. And we're mic'd here today because this conversation will be edited and available on the New Books Network podcast. And so just a big plug for them, if you don't have your own books, Uh, on the New Books Network podcast, you should definitely reach out, have your press reach out. Um, Our downloads are very impressive for our books, but theirs are absolutely incredible. They have millions of downloads. And so the format is basically uh, new books that come out in scholarly fields have their own editors. And the editors themselves uh, are scholars working in that area. And so it's a scholar interviewing another scholar about their book, um, but the conversations are often very rich um, and are a great way to find out about new research. Um, So as Daryl mentioned, this is in honor of Open Access Week, which happens um, every year in October. And it just so happens that October is also the month for um, the Border of Lights commemoration. And so this... Emmerich College Press book, um, which is a multimodal, (laughs) multi-multilingual book, which I hope uh, the authors talk a little bit more about, um, is called uh, Bearing Witness to Genocide in the Dominican Republic and um, talks about something that happened on the Haitian border. And Karma's also latest book. This is the latest one. Karma's very prolific. so (laughs) Uh, Latest book also in part deals with um, Haitian migrants as well. And so I think there are a lot of interesting intersections, especially at this intense moment for for Haiti and, and what is going on there. I think um, it will be interesting to hear uh, sort of where the conversation goes today. And so we'll start with uh, each of them talking a little bit how they've come to doing activist scholarship and also collaborative writing. Um, do you remember how many contributors your volume has, the Porter of Lights Reader? Uh, 50, maybe, oh, maybe with all of yeah. the audio visual and yeah so it was a real community project normally edited volumes to give you an indication have 12 to 13 contributors so this was quite an enormous project um, and karma has co-authored and um, co-written many things and so they'll each talk a little bit about how they came to it and then we'll have a bit of a conversation and then open it for A at the end so karma did you want to start okay. great
0: All right, Um, thank you all so much for being here for this conversation. I feel uh, super honored to be with the two of you um, to have this conversation. And so um, I'll I'll say just a few things. I mean, I think uh, for me thinking about scholarship collaboratively and, and, and publishing as an activist practice is an extension of kind of the way I think of pretty much everything. That I do. So why would I think of scholarship any differently? Um, so uh, you know, I, I I've published traditional monographs too uh, that I still authored and you know did the independent work to prove that I'm a legitimate scholar. Apparently, um, <laughs> but I uh, have also done a lot of a, a lot of um, collaboration, and so some of that has been. More traditional co-editing books, uh, and some of it has been probably the most meaningful work has been uh, editing projects that that bring out the voices of folks who may not find their ways into a university press book, for example. But believing it's important for all kinds of voices to be in university press books to, you know, challenge the concept of, of knowledge itself, and so. <coughs> Sorry, man. Get something in my throat. I I think for me. Uh, Early on, I just saw publishing as an opportunity to bring people together, and I saw publishing as an opportunity to push boundaries. And I guess I've just always kind of seen it that way. (laughs) And I continue to see it that way, and I'm excited at this juncture of my career to be able to uh, think more expansively uh, than I have in the past, even though I think I've tried to be somewhat expansive with the ways that I've I've published. and and you know, thinking with Beth, I do have a project that I am eventually going to send what to you. About for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's hard too. So if you work with community organizers as co-authors, for example, you know, like well, my co-author—I shouldn't speak for all community organizers—but my co-author who is amazing, uh, writing is hard to sit down and make time for, even though she knows it's really important and has a really important story to tell. It has a perspective that I don't think is out there elsewhere. Um, and the project that I'm eventually gonna send a best since I guess I'm just talking about it and i telling tell you what it is. So, uh, so it's called, um, well, I don't know what it'll be called now. Historically, it's been called something like After Ferguson, uh, Black Queer Feminist Experiments Against Police and Jails. And part of it emerged from our collaborative work in the post-2014 moment in Madison uh, thinking about how you put the university in the service of the community, the black community in particular, and all the different ways that that manifested. And so one of the reasons that Amherst College Press is like the best place to do this is we've got all sorts of videos of stuff. We've got all sorts of radio episodes that I hosted. I mean, you name it, visual images, just something that doesn't work for a regular book. And also, we wouldn't want a regular book. We want it to be... Uh, for the community because it's of the community. So, I think that's kind of for me the thing, if if, if my work is always and already of the community, from the community, it, it also needs to be for the community, and um, uh, so I think that's just the way I orient uh, when it comes to scholarship. Um, I'm happy to say more, but I'm going to pass it on to my colleagues.
3: Um. I just want to start by saying thank you for for hosting us this afternoon, right? Afternoon for 440. Thanks to the the, the Chi and to Daryl and also to Trin for being so incredibly helpful um, organizing our visits. Thank you and Beth and Amherst College Press for the support and for inviting us here to celebrate Open Access Week. We're really grateful and honored to be here. Um, I was going to start a little bit just thinking about my my background. Um, You know, in a traditional scholarly field, I was trained as as a literary critic, in Hispanic literature, as a Caribbeanist, and I didn't have any models really of collaborative scholarship— of um, activist-based scholarship or even of, of community-based learning or community-based scholarship. And so when I thought about how, how I was going to make myself competitive on a really competitive job market, you know, as it continues today for academics, I knew I was going to have to kind of broaden my, my expertise and my skills. So I got into things like digital humanities, Um, You know, thinking about languages for professions, I teach languages, so thinking about languages in professional settings, how we can teach students to be global professionals, and also I got really into engaged scholarship. And so when I when I think about engaged scholarship, I'm talking about integrating education and research with community development, and then working with collaboratively and alongside community partners. So you know when I when I became interested in thinking of myself and identifying as an engaged scholar, I started to work with and go to workshops of imagining America. Um, I also became a fellow as a as a junior faculty member at Iowa State of Campus Compact, which has kind of regional statewide offices, but also nationwide office. So as I started to do this work and think about what it would look like for me to really engage with a more public audience, collaborate with the community research alongside community members and community partners, it gave me, I think, a really um, really, I guess, specific framework to be able to think about collaborative research and the co-construction of research alongside community partners. And um, Kadam, I really like what you said about research and publications that that bring people together. I think that, you know, I would speak for us, Eddie, that, you know, for the Border of Lights reader, that's something that's really been a motivator for our work um, to bring the voices and perspectives of individuals who normally would not be found in traditional academic anthology um you know to bring those to bring those voices into the work and to make it a more accessible publication and, you know, when I when I think about that, I think that we we really consciously named the Border of Lights Reader, the Border of Lights Reader and not Anthology or referring to it as an edited collection because we were trying to, you know, transgress this idea of this traditional academic anthology where what you might find are, again, traditional academic and scholarly articles or essays with a certain word count, with a certain kind of um, vibe and approach, a uh, conclusion. Instead, we really wanted to, to broaden that and kind of blow the idea of the traditional academic anthology out of the water and that's why you know this yeah we did (laughs) but like yes you did that um you know and that's why too. you know this an an open access publication was really ideal for what for what we were trying to do
1: hello hello can you hear me yeah uh yes uh thank you again uh beth karma hannah trent uh daryl amherst press and amherst for inviting us this is my first time in amherst um coming from Brooklyn, uh, my Yankee hat is in the school bag, so I might be a little sad, um, but um, this is great um, hearing Carmen um, and Megan talk about uh, kind of open access because uh, I feel like, you know, I got this image when you both were speaking about that commercial in the 1990s when the Macintosh came out, and, uh, you know, it's this kind of dystopian 1984 world. And you see on the screen, everybody is kind of bald and monochromatic, black and white image. And people are listening to Big Brother on the screen. And then all of a sudden, representing IBM. And then, you know, in the hallway, in the middle, in the aisle, you have this woman running, right? And being chased and then, you know, hurling a kind of hammer against you know throwing it against the, the screen to break it and the narrator says you'll you'll find out why 1984 won't be like 1984 kind of like the opening salvo of of uh, of apple and that's how i feel uh encountering this world this metaverse of publishing of uh, open access uh because i'm very much you know i belong to a guild that is incredibly traditional in many ways, right? We are historians, I'm a historian. I'm very proud to be a historian. I I always tell my students and in lectures, you know, we're like kind of Jedi's, right? Um, And the traditional way I was trained, I I did my PhD in 1995 to 2001, um, was you go into the archive, you document everything, you may do some ethnographic research, interview people. Don't forget IRB, right? And you produce the single authored monograph at a scholarly press. And if you're lucky enough to get a job, you get a promotion to associate and you get tenure. If you want full professor, you need to do the same thing. Single authored monograph with a uh, recognized academic press, right? Not open access reader, <laughs> right? As my colleagues in the department say, oh, you're not getting promotion with that. Oh, no. And so that's where I am, right? So I feel that we're in this new world, or at least I am, of uh, this, the intersections between uh, what does publishing look like in the 21st century and then, what is my responsibility, or what do I want it to be, as a scholar, right? Because I just finished, you know, during the pandemic, reading *The Power Broker* with Robert Caro. Now I'm on the second book uh, of his uh, Robert of his uh, LBJ books, right? Long prose, just amazing, right? Books, uh, but there's this other world, right? And so I think the reader, for me. Was this the confluence of events of me wanting to tell a story, making it accessible, also collaborating, not just with someone who meets, we meet every year in the Dominican Republic, but is a fellow kind of uh, scholar? And then on another level, how do we use this format to create something that is beyond? Scholarship, but really, at least the way we envisioned it, uh, a memorial. Right? That's what it is to an event that we have and can justify as genocidal in the 20th century. Um, and for us, that I, I think open access allowed us uh, in a way, you know, that gave us more freedom than a traditional format. Um, so it has been incredibly. Uh, liberating uh, in this process. Yeah, thank
2: you all for... for sharing those stories. And actually one of the the sort of first questions I had is there is a lot of sort of broad still misconceptions about what open access is and that as if it were this monolithic monolithic thing that it was, you know, some people feel like maybe it's this monolithic bad or monolithic good in, in some people's opinions. Um, but one of my questions is, and I, I have gotten from provost, for example, um, you know, have you used, or any of your authors, have they used their books for tenure promotion? And I think the the worry is often that how do you quantify this, both in the open access realm and also in, I'm thinking of something like Palestine on the Air, right? This project that you had. Um, how do you quantify that for for tenure and promotion purposes? And how do you justify that? And so the one way for an author who did use um, an open access monograph with us for tenure um, was that I had to do a lot of handholding and do a lot of explaining that everything goes through peer review, just like a traditional university press. Everything goes through uh, a faculty board and we have members of our faculty board and our chair right here. Um, And so when you're saying something is worthy of counting as research, what are you saying? Um, so then you're just working on a prestige economy. If if at the end of the day, something is peer reviewed, it is approved by a faculty board, how is it not counted and quantified on the same level? Um, but the other part of that is that we have, especially in the academy in the US, such a culture of individualism. And it is only the thing, especially in the humanities, right? I think the sciences have a very different approach. Some of the non humanistic social sciences do as well Um, but what counts is what is single authored and so just wondering if if you could all maybe speak a little bit to those two issues because I think there are more people who want to do work like this but they worry for their own livelihoods for their own you know very good reasons um, that it might not be seen in a way that is respected on the same level or or counted on the same level.
0: So I'll say something about this, because right before I arrived here, I spent uh, two nine-hour days locked in a room with people on the College Promotion and Tenure Committee at the University of Texas. Uh, and, and and this question uh, came up some time. Uh, in particular, uh, there's a, an amazing scholar, foundational scholar on UT's campus, who has stood at rank of associate professor for 24 years, because uh, he's devoted all of his time to building institutions, to changing the very landscape that is the University of Texas. And uh, one of the ways he's done that is by intervening in the very narrative Texas has about itself um, with regard to its history embedded in racism and slavery. And so, you know, some years back, you may have even seen on the TV about removing statues at UT when that was happening elsewhere. But this guy, like, he was kind of the guy who made that happen. He also created this huge digital humanities project uh, called the Racial Geography Tour, which did all this archival work. Uh, you can watch it online. He does a physical version of it too, you know, that tells you this whole history. Well, that's never been good enough to go up for promotion. And so finally his chair just said, you know what, we're putting you up. So we had this extensive conversation about it um, in the committee, and I was actually shocked because I went into this meeting like with my boxing gloves on and like ready to fight. And you know, there there ended up being a, a, an amazing conversation where um, people were really saying now is the time across the board where we need to really rethink what we're counting. Um and, and and what scholarship looks like, and so, obviously I can't tell you the outcome because this is confidential uh, proceedings. <laughs> but what I can say is that I was heartened by the conversation, so I do think there's space that maybe hasn't existed um, until now.. Um,
3: yeah, I think another piece to, uh, you know, for me personally and f- on my campus in particular is just that a lot of early career researchers don't really understand what OA means or, or even, you know, Open Educational Resources, you know, OER means, and these terms are that can you know, kind of hold this role of these buzzwords, right? They hear them, they might read them, but they're not really sure what it looks like for them, what it looks like for their scholarship, what it might look like in their classrooms. And so there's kind of this disconnect there. So for me, you know, one way to push against that is just education, um, you know, on campus, to have a librarian in in this a role that looks specifically, works specifically with open access, that brings workshops to campus, um, kind of project-based workshops. um, And then also to encourage those kind of Early adopters—they're not even early adopters anymore. They're just those those individuals who are doing the work, right? That that we hope that more people will be doing or start to do, um, that they become advocates on their on their campuses as well. Um, you know, something else I think a lot about is with this kind of miseducation piece—is um, that or, or kind of this lack of education piece around OA, is that there are a lot of you know when we can stress quality over prestige, you know, that then we're making some progress or can see some progress. And there are really ways to do that that are, that are quite simple. You know, you can suggest to, you know, early career researchers or, or scholars, junior faculty, you know, to look for certain indicators when they're looking at open access journals and thinking about, oh, should I publish here? You know, I've never heard of this before. You can look at, you know, does it have an ISSN number? You know, is, is, is there some type of kind of um, identifier for that journal? Okay, great. You know, check number one. Does the journal, you know, so you're looking at it online? Does it have a clear scope? You know, can you, can you read about um, the, 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 mission of the journal? Does it have some history or is that really vague and unclear? And you know, it's probably a negative indicator. Um, is there information on peer review and copyright that's really clear? Great. You know, if it's really vague, if it's non-existent or absent from the, from the page, from the journal, the digital journal, probably an issue. So kind of educating around those types of, you know, positive or negative indicators, and we're looking at possible options for um, open access publications. Um And then when we think more about kind of the promotion and tenure piece, I think a big issue for a lot of us, Beth, as you mentioned, is this, you know, okay, how do we value or do we value at all collaborative scholarship? In my institution, we have to give the, and Eddie and I were talking about this, the the actual percentage of, right, and this is common, you know, across institutions, the percentage um, of the work that we did or that we feel we did. It's incredibly subjective. And um, I-, I started with a couple colleagues who I worked with that we said, let's just both put a hundred. Heck yeah, because we've done both hundred percent of this work to say here that because it was a collaborative work and a collaborative project is 100% of course, not to say that it was any less work. In fact, Eddie, when he says, it's more work oftentimes, right? So, you know, I think to to do that, to push back and say like, mm-hmm, we've co-written this and we're both going to put 100% here because yes, you know, we really both um, had to work together and in a lot of ways, um, you know, work even harder. And we're both claiming 100% of this, of this scholarship and of this publication. So I think the fact that those kind of, um, asks for percentages even factor into promotion and tenure discussions um, you know is problematic but to also think of ways to to push back a little bit um, you know and to, to educate and to, to think through think critically about those those numbers we're asked to give is, is a is a good start
1: yeah and uh, for me uh, my institution and we have to consider these realities uh, through the prism of Hispanic-serving institution. That's who we are at at, uh, John Jay College. Um, uh, And it wasn't because we recruited, we just, because of demographics, they just came to us and there was this whole debate of, you know, um, how much of that identity do we want to promote? I think we're on board now. Um, But I think, especially when I first got to, to John Jay, there was this feeling where, you know, some of the some of the, the faculty that are no longer there that it was a kind of way station until you know it, it was like you know my apologies to Milwaukee fans but it's like you're you, you know you're at the Milwaukee Brewers playing and you're waiting for your shot to to go to the New York Yankees right or the Mets or a big market kind of thing that's how and so there are these layers of right sometimes um, unspoken. Kind of expectations and biases, especially where you are. And so you have to kind of to contend with those challenges too. Uh, you know, I'm an Hispanic-serving institution, so what, is, what will, you know, make the system or promotion committees or whatever um, respect me more? Well, of course, that's easy, right? Big press, right? I don't know, Harvard, Princeton, Etc. Versus, right, uh, open access or whatever, right? Because you always have this, you know, the the what, uh, what do you call it, imposter syndrome? Am I good enough to be here? Etc. And if you're a, a person of color too, a faculty, then you know, and from the working class, that's you know something you have to contend with. And sometimes it's not articulated. Sometimes it's just it's in the air. Um, I was fortunate too. Uh, to have a a mentor, uh, uh, John J. Jerry Markowitz, who's one of the leading national kind of scholars on lead poisoning in the United States. And I had had breakfast with him last year, and he's a distinguished professor. It's the highest rank you can achieve at CUNY as a professor. And he told me and reminded me, he said, you know, most of my publications are co-authored. He said, "I I can't see myself." He's a historian. I can't see myself by myself doing this. He's not knocking. He said, "But for him, right? It was something that karma said, which I think uh, he said. Well, why would I think of scholarship any differently? I agree. The challenge is, is, like how do you how do you get there when many of us uh, don't think like that because we were trained, right? It's you know it's." I'm right-handed. This is the way, right? This is the way I was trained. How do you go against that, the counter? And I think that's that's what I'm after. Twenty years at John Jay. That's what I'm uh, um, confronting. There's my colleagues, Luis Barrios, David Brotherton, sociologists who have books on uh, deportations. Um, And and to end, uh, yes, right. At the end, what is the value of what we're doing? Right. Um, you know, does a TED Ed talk that you write that has a million views, does does that get any traction in the um, promotion committee? Does it does a NEH backed audio tour you did from the Andean collection at the Brooklyn Museum of Art that you can get for free? Does that count? Um, does a one person show? That you've gone to from Duke to Brandeis to perform on your scholarship on the massacre uh count no they don't right and i would I would put o a in that category for many of those committees
2: yeah and that, I think, is a good segue also into this question of um, how, how does open access allow you to reach a public audience? So when you're thinking about all of these other things that you were doing um, that are their own type of scholarship and a presentation of that scholarship, how does open access maybe um, you know open you beyond just the sort of sub-sub field of your discipline, which are the usual readers of university press books, um, and in particular, for the humanities and the humanistic social sciences, you know, what opportunities might that open up?
3: Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. I think for us in particular, when we think about the Border of Lights reader, you um, you know, we we talked about how we had this you know this great diversity in terms of contributors, right? That weren't just writing traditional academic essays, but instead that were um, we were recording voice notes. We have a section it's really, your press probably really worried you, Beth. You know, it's called voice notes from La Frontera. So just um, literally audio conversations that we had with different community partners who we knew wouldn't submit an essay, but that yeah, we could record a little conversation and include it in an audio section at the end. So we really knew we wanted to achieve this diversity in terms of voices, but. We also knew that we wanted to achieve the same diversity in terms of the readership to really reach a wider audience, to break down those barriers of accessibility, and make sure that the same community partners who were contributing, our same partners, our same um, you know the the, the audience that the attends Border of Lights events for the last ten years, that those individuals could also access the reader free of charge. You know, so that was that was a really big thing for us. But also to recognize that there still are some barriers to accessibility and we're thinking about, you know, having an online a stable internet connection to to be able to access the reader. It doesn't solve all the problems, but it gives us something to to work with to start from you know, partnering with institutions there on the border and other ways that, that you know, we can make that that text accessible um, in the digital online format. But, you know, we really wanted to focus on not just diversity in terms of the contributors, but also, you know, in, in terms of the readership that we could reach. And we've done a lot of, of outreach in the community um, to achieve that. And, you know, I think the other big, the big thing for the Border of Lights reader in particular is thinking about... Um, Linguistic diversity. So as as Beth mentioned, that the reader has contributions in four languages English, Spanish, Haitian Creole, and French. And so one of the reasons we wanted, you know, the, the project to be open access, that was a really important factor for us, was so that you know any reader could could access, you know, could use that link to find the find the project online for free and just pick out what what you know what the language that what they could understand, right? What made sense to them, what they were interested in. So it wasn't kind of um, you know, kind of, I don't know, you know, it wasn't excluding anyone. Instead, it was inviting everyone to participate and to engage with the parts of the text, with the contributions, you know, to the reader um, that, that were accessible to them linguistically as well. So, you know, I think we we thought about that from, from lots of different angles.
2: I think um, having it in four languages is something that is, would not be viable on the market, right? So there's no way a university press would do a book partially in Haitian Creole, for instance. Um, It just doesn't have a market that is an an actual monetary market, but it does have a readership, right? And so from our perspective, you know, when we're thinking about, I always say our currency is usage. Um, And so what it frees you up to do also in terms of publishing in other languages is is enormous um, because I think university presses, it aligns very well with their mission but even few presses in the U.S. publish in Spanish, and to think about how many Spanish speakers we have in this country, um, and that is also very limited. Um, so for me, that was something incredibly attractive about this volume, inviting linguistically um, groups in that are not normally, you know, marketed to or you know, tried to to be brought in to the university press publishing community.
0: Uh, I guess I just I would add briefly. I think like. Uh, people can find work that would never find academic work. And that's, I think, such a huge benefit as well. I mean, if you talk to, well, even our students, like where's the first place our students go is like, they Google something. And if they're at the university, they don't necessarily uh, come across the the firewalls that prevent them from, from getting access to information. But then, if you think of other people that aren't our students who do immediately come across that, but if y- y- your information is available, and if you've done all the metadata appropriately, so it's going to show up in the <laughs> searches, Whole other topic. Well yeah, which is the challenge. <laughs> but then all of a sudden that's material um, that that becomes primary and i and I think that can't be uh, overstated. I mean, with the the, the Palestine. Book that I, I published. It's it's a book of interviews and it's it's freely available on JSTOR In addition to a print-on-demand book, um, you know, people have reached out to me in the most random ways because they came across an interview and they didn't. When the interview was on the radio, which is a, you know podcasted and still available, that's not how they found it. They they found it this way and it's like mm-hmm. that's pretty freaking cool. Mm-hmm. So that's another piece I just have.
1: Yeah, it's the democratization, right of the publishing industry, and uh, it's pretty surreal when I forward uh, the Fulcrum, the, the website, mm-hmm. uh, or the link for the book, and a lot of people, for free? So <laughs> Really? It's like, w- what's the catch, right? And uh, no, no, it's for you. And that is incredibly powerful. Um, you know, and, and what I love about, uh, just OA and, you know, Amherst Press, and it's that, uh, you know, the writer Malcolm Gladwell has this saying I like, he says, um, look at what most people in your field are doing and then go the other way. <laughs> and I think this is, uh, you know, reflects that kind of doing something new and, um, and just the accessibility of different languages, right? This cost prohibitive, you know, yeah. a, a, at another press, traditional press, you
2: know. And on that topic, um, uh, you know, thinking about the the wonderful aspect of having the four languages, there's the other aspect of when I received this manuscript, I had a a minor meltdown. I think, what did we do, right? This is so complex. There's there's audiovisual, there's poetry. Um, They have two very famous poets who contributed. Um, And also thinking about, you know, just even typesetting, what is the, the you know, actual digital book going to look like compared to the the actual printed book, um, the four languages, just all of it. Um, and I think, you know, for me, it, you have to be willing to put in all that extra work. It's an enormous amount of work to do something so multifaceted and, and complex like this. But... You know, so my question to all of you is oftentimes this kind of work is, is a lot more effort and a lot more time, like you've mentioned. So, you know, what have been the challenges and, and how are you able to move past them to be able to produce work like this and to do collaborative research? Um, and what advice would you have for others who are looking to or either expand or to get into this kind of writing and publishing?
3: I was going to share first I think one, you know, motivator again for like the the multimodal, multivocal, everything that this project is, kind of the motivation for that. Um, was that, you know, one thing we talk about a lot in with this Border of Lights movement, and I, I should give like a tiny one-second um, explanation of what Border of Lights is, or do you want to do it? Me? Okay. Um So very briefly, Border of Lights is a volunteer collective that meets on the Dominican-Haitian border every year, it began 10 years ago for the 75th anniversary of the 1937 massacre. Numbers vary, historian would agree, the numbers vary between 15 and 25, upwards of 25,000 Haitians and Dominicans of Haitian descent. Were murdered along the northern border um, in what Eddie defines and historians now call the day an ethnic genocide. So, the Border of Lights is a movement and it's this very collaborative, um, always shifting kind of volunteer based movement that celebrates um, the border and, and the solidarity that exists on the border, but also commemorates the lives lost. So, a conversation that I think we always have every year we come back to is how do we bear witness? How do we bear witness as volunteers, as scholars, as, as members of the community, as members of the Dominican-Haitian diasporas? How, how do we bear witness to, to the massacre? How do we bear witness to the reality of, of, of the Dominican-Haitian border today? And for us, when we thought about that driving motivator, the, the only way that we could— um, authentically bear witness in, in any type of textual format was doing a project like this, you know. So I think what motivated us as scholars was that this was the only way we saw that we could do it. You know, it was the only way to um, authentically uh, tell the story, you know, of the border, to tell the history of of, of Border of Lights um, and of the many partners and collaborators that that we've had. So, you know, an example is... You know, not only do we have an introduction that Eddie and I wrote together, but there's also a photo gallery after the introduction. That's something that you could not do likely, you know, with the with financial constraints of a typical academic press, right? Um, so th- thinking through a lot of those, um, you know, just those the ways to break with that conventional format as as something that, that guided our decision to publish open access. And I think um, you know, just advice for those who are wanting to do something similar or publish in a similar format. I think having those conversations early with collaborators, with with presses that you're interested in working with. You know, Beth and I were saying, I think we met at like some snowy MLA conference in New York City five years ago to, to begin the conversation, to see, you know, would this, would this fit? Do you think this is a project you would take on? So to really... Um, think critically, have those hard conversations and, um, you know, to do, it, to do it early as you imagine and kind of dream up over, you know, I don't over the last 10 years that we've been thinking about this to really think about what it is you want to do and how you can really um, achieve those those goals.
1: Yes. Um, you have the copyright for that word multimodal. Oh my God, how many times? Multimodal. She came up with that term as we were going back and forth. Um, uh, Yeah, uh, it was, um, I mean, you meeting Beth uh, was serendipitous, right? Uh, It just reminds me of, uh, what's his name? Nassim Taleb, who wrote The Black Swan. And uh, they asked him, you know, because he was the one that bet against, you know, he waited until the market dropped in 2008. So he lost money until 2008 betting that it was going to drop and he made all this money and so it's a big wonky book but he says they ask him what um many tips to succeed he says not really well maybe one he says maximize serendipity (laughs) and so i think um it was very serendipitous and uh it just again i would urge my fellow historians fellow jedis um to consider um, open access. Uh, I mean, it's faster in a way, right? And uh, But also, you know, it's, it's along my values of and our values of um, making information accessible and not segregating knowledge. Uh, and, and that has a major appeal. Um, you know, the idea that You know, because then you start reproducing those same uh, kind of restraints where in the West we can, you know, kind of recycle our information here and get some type of value and reward here. But yet on the border or in in those countries, developing countries, um, they don't have access to that. So I think this is, for us, was important. And also... I think we also knew, it's like, you know, for us, the idea that, you know, whether we can get promotion of this, which at least in history we're not, wasn't important because we were clear, right? We we said this, we're bearing witness, we want this to be a memorial, and especially in a country that, you know, it's not like Germany, you know, they, it's, just, you know it's in the history books, but, you know, it's not recognized as uh, as it should be, particularly because what happened in 1937 is uh, a genocide, but it's also, as we talk about in terms of, you take the hemispheric kind of perspective, like Carl Sagan used to say, right? The 1937 massacre was part of a hemispheric kind of um, pattern of anti-black violence, right? So it's not just, particularly for Americans, it's not just Tulsa, right? It's also, you know, 1912, the 5,000 Afro-Cuban men, women, and children who were killed, as Eileen Helg wrote in her book, Our Rightful Share, also 1937. Um, and there's a great book uh, by, uh, she's a, a historian, Sabine Kadou. Uh, from Cambridge University Press is called More Than a Massacre, where she really uh, revises our understanding of what the massacre uh, is and contextualizes it more in a kind of, um, kind of historiography of genocide
2: and i can't say from the research side of it but i think definitely if if you're interested in publishing this kind of activist collaborative work i think you know many publishers do want to be partners in that and sometimes it's not viable and sometimes they're not able to do it because they're market based um but karma has been able to publish this kind of work in in more you know traditional modes as well so i think the best thing to do is to go out talk to editors at conferences talk to publishers see what what might work in in their models also um and many university presses really are committed to reaching a greater public right um and have larger and larger trade lists for instance um and things that are on topics that appeal to like a larger audience outside the scholarly world are becoming you know much more common at university presses so i think from my side of things one step for people who want to do this is to just start talking to publishers and see what could work and who might be interested in publishing what. Um, so I think we can open it up for some questions now um, before we move to the reception, if anyone would like to pose a question.
4: Uh, Daryl Harper. I, um, I'm i in the music department here, and I, I'm wondering, um, you know, I, you all are at points in your careers where as you said Karma, you're you're sitting on the promotion and tenure committee and i wonder if you see things changing over time say the next 10 years where these things will start to count because you're in the room where the decisions the rooms where the decisions are being made do you see that happening over time or or do you think it's more you know, resistant or impenetrable?
0: So, I think that's an important question. I mean, you know, one, one piece of advice I would give is like, maybe wait till tenure or not be worried about tenure, be in a position, you know, if you're going to do this kind of publishing. But, so that's maybe the practical but cynical answer. But I do think um, one of the things that is in common upon us who kind of have gone through the ranks and are also doing this kind of work, is to participate in writing the mechanisms by which non-traditional scholarship is going to be evaluated. And so, and and in some ways, like, I mean, this is, it's ridiculous with Amherst College Press because it's built in, it's peer-reviewed, there's a faculty, I mean, it's so, anyone who doesn't see it as legitimate is just doing so intentionally, but... There are a lot of other kinds of scholarship where one of the hesitancies is, this looks good to me, but I don't know how to evaluate it. Or, I think it looks good. What's the method by which I evaluate? And so, I mean, this is, you know, as a music scholar, as a musician, I think you all have probably are light years ahead of where the rest of us in the humanities are about how do you evaluate that kind of work. So, perhaps that's the kind of collaboration requires um, for us to learn from you and then take seriously creating those mechanisms at our own institutions. Yeah, I, I would add too that I know we,
3: we talked about how doing this type of work, collaborative work, um, you know, open access work might mean simply that, more work, right? It can be, there can be a lot of moving pieces. They can be rather complex projects. And I think it's also more work in kind of the, the work that you're going to have to do institutionally as well, you know, on your campus. So to be prepared as, as scholars... Um, regardless of the stage, to, to have those conversations, to to push for for changes in the promotion and tenure processes, but also you know to actually have the conversations yourself with those who are reviewing you, with colleagues. Um, with administrators up, oh, let me explain to you what an alt metric is. But did you know, you know why it's published here? Like, I'll, I'll tell you why. Because I, I value engaged scholarship. I value community perspective. And this fits, you know, when you can show and argue that it fits within your academic profile. And most of the time, you know, I think we would probably all say it, it fits, right? You know, there's a reason why I'm doing this. Um, you know, like you can make that argument and explain or show, oh, you know, this also shows like there's a there's a feedback, an ongoing feedback channel where this has been shared on on Twitter, you know, or on, on WhatsApp groups, um, that there are other ways to for you to kind of get an idea of the usage and the, the audience that this work has reached. So I think if you're willing to put in the extra work not only in the production of, of the pro- the collaborative project, um, but also in explaining the the reasoning behind it. Um you know, that, 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 that that maybe puts some momentum behind, you know, these types of projects at, at your institution and and beyond.
5: Is it working? Okay, cool. Um, Hi, I'm Ash. Um, I'm really curious uh, to hear y'all speak about, um, I guess the community building and like trust building process involved in like, um, I guess, soliciting like artists, activists, and scholars, for these like collaborative open access project projects, um, because I know that obviously you know there's usually some tension between um, you know academia and then like folks who are like on the ground living these lives, um, and you know just thinking about like the directions where knowledge sort of like flows in and out, and I know that some people like maybe hesitant to sort of you know offer their lives up for scrutiny or you know, for publishing. So I guess I'm really just curious about, you know, where it is, how do y'all get comfortable with each other? And, you know, how do you sort of build relationships in that way?
0: Well, I'll say briefly, and my primary sort of iteration of this is not through an open access venue. It's uh, something published by University of Illinois. But, um, you know, one being embedded in communities and, and, and doing the work is maybe first step there. But, um, so, my edited, co-edited book, Queer and Trans Migrations, um, we, th- we thought to actually be able to document what's happening. You, you can't have a scholarly book that isn't alongside the voices of, of artists and, and activists. And we just were principally committed to that. And um, so, you know, we put calls up, but we also talked to our friends and our comrades, uh, and we also paid them. So um, it wasn't a huge amount of money, uh, but we paid them So uh, to at least symbolically suggest that we valued their work. And, you know, we didn't change people's work. We did for the, the sort of scholarly pieces, but activists got to say what they wanted to say about what they wanted to say. Like, there was no us editing or, if you know, there's pieces in that book that uh, I think, like, my co-editor maybe was, like, not exactly comfortable with but we needed them to be able to stand on their own terms. And so there was, um, you know, there was no like, we knew better because we were scholar kind of thing. So that's maybe one example.
3: I think that's a really good question. Thanks, Ash. Um, You know, I think thinking about this work and Board of Lights in particular, um, something that helped us was we had already been building on at the point when we started this this project, five or six, six plus years of of working with these community partners, really embedded in the community, having those difficult conversations. And we talked a little bit about the, the Border of Lights events, which include often kind of um, bi-national. We've done interactive murals, um, numerous visits to schools. We've co-published um, children's books with a nonprofit in Haiti, La Cucajou. We've done... Um, by national soccer games, all, all sorts of things. But one thing that we always did at the very end of this kind of uh border celebration, also these remembrances, the vigils, that's also, the memorials, it's a really important piece of Border of Lights as well, is we would have these kind of, host these community conversations or kind of community summits where we really had no voice, just as kind of, if you want us there, you know, a help to organize, we would kind of, um, we would provide travel stipends and stipends for different community members, voices, individuals who work with nonprofits related to um, the Dominican-Haitian border, right, today, to come to share um, and to be the leading voices in the discussion, so you know to have been have to have built our project on, on six or seven years of that that work, and and just of listening, um, you know was a helpful place to start. I think they, our partners, our community partners, knew that that we valued them, and when we um, understood our roles as as listeners, um, oftentimes. Um, and just to shout out to some of our amazing community partners, Reconocido, Mula, a group of um, women of, Dominican, of, of Dominican-Haitian descent, um, Centro Montalvo, which is a Jesuit nonprofit that works with border solidarity in the northern border region. We've just had amazing community partners, so really worked at developing those, those relationships um, over time. And then just as another framework, maybe it's helpful from, I don't know, a student perspective or research perspective, too, but to think about you know, the ways we can engage with community, especially in the terms of scholarship with, you know, you can have scholarship that's, you know, goes to the community and that you're just publicizing or disseminating. You do your own thing in your office, you shut that door and then you might send it out, right? You know, maybe you send them a, a free link or what, you know, whatever it is, you're sharing it. Um, or for the community, maybe you, you've you thought about the community's goals, you've, you've identified a specific problem. So you have an, an end goal or an audience in mind. Or when you move to the end of that spectrum, and when I, and I would hope that more scholarship moves in this direction is when you're you're designing scholarship or you're writing, you're publishing with the community, and in that case, you're you're developing, you're really co-constructing and co-creating, um, and and that I think is is the goal and the hope for a lot of these projects.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to say really quickly, it's a very good question and one that is being talked a lot about in open access circles right now, um, in particular in relationship to what does it mean to make. Uh, indigenous knowledge, open access, and how to do that in ways that are driven by the community. Um, and what what are the ethics at stake when you have people whose knowledge has been robbed and used um, in ways to harm their own communities? Um, so I think it's a really, really germane question to what's going on right now. Um, I think, do we have time for one more question? Um, Paul, did you have a question?
4: I a comment regarding tenure processes and, and following up on Karma's comment that here at Amherst last year we had a conversation at, at the college level about revisiting tenure guidelines and so those were looked at, uh, tweaked or rewritten, some parts completely rewritten, they were sent to departments and departments then could add specifics to their own departments. And in our department, one of the things we did is we added in the list of possible areas that we value, community-engaged research. Even though none of us are doing it right now, I'm starting to, but I could see that, you know, in the future, this is something that all of us in the department were eager to recognize as something that we aspire to do, students want us to do and that we are ethically bound to do because we have all these privileges here as an institution. So that's one way of uh, practically at the ground level Mm -hmm. helping this shift.
1: Uh, Could I quickly ask what, if you don't mind me asking, what's your department? Uh, Okay, thank you. Yeah, and you have have
2: started with. Lever Press book, the Casa Pueblo book, um, to to work also in translation is is another area um, that I don't think gets enough attention in terms of this kind of collaborative praxis. Um, But I think that actually was a really great way to end. And thank you all so much for taking the time during this busy, busy time of the semester to come and visit and chat with us. Um, And we will enjoy a reception now.